Well, I've got a question for you this morning. And it's, what is it that gets you pumped up? What gets you, what gets you excited? You probably won't use this word, but what gets you, uh, in a bygone era, we would call it overjoyed? Is it a little pay raise going into, you know, 2018? Is it that promotion, that corner office that you've been longing for? Is it um, the outcome of the ACC championship game? Believe me, I thought the application for that was going to be a little bit different this morning. Is it a good report from the doctor? These are all important things. The Bible says that we're, we are to... Um, enjoy what he gives, but I'm here to tell you, beginning of December, bah humbug. As Christians, these are not the things that we are supposed to find our deepest joy in, especially in this holiday season. It shouldn't be lights or trees or eggnog, because when you walk through the stores, as you listen to uh, the people on the television, as you pay attention to the marketing, What you will hear over the weeks to come will have lots to do about Christmas and zero to do about Christ. You're not going to hear a word about Jesus because we have tried to make the holiday antiseptic. You're not even allowed to wish people Merry Christmas anymore without getting written up at work for fear of somebody's going to get offended. And we've completely stripped Christ from the holiday that is called by His name, the Christ Mass. And so today... I'm here to encourage you that God wants you to have a joy, and a joy that is full. He wants your joy bucket to be overflowing. And the challenge is that we typically, if you are like me, find our joy in things that are not the deepest things to find our joy in. It's kind of like eating Cheetos for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Um, It might sustain you. It's just not good for you. And God has something much deeper and much more significant for us to find our joy in. And so Christmas is most definitely a time of joy when we understand it. The problem for us as American Christians is that we have become so idolatrous that we don't even know that we're bowing down to the wrong things. We don't even know. So this morning we're going to look at Luke chapter 1 verses 46 through 55. It's a a song, it's a poem that spontaneously sprang in Mary's heart related to the incarnation, to the virginal conception, virgin birth of Jesus. And it's a song known by its, a Latin phrase that is the uh, kind of beginning call called the Magnificat. In Latin it is Magnificat anima mea dominum, my soul rejoices in God. And as we think about this holiday season, there's no better passage for us to consider than this when it comes to where will we find the source of our joy. As we journey along, we'll be able to ask ourselves, do we rejoice the same way and in the same things that Mary rejoices in? Now, there's a couple outstanding features about this passage. If I didn't didn't talk about it, uh, it, I I I would not be teaching the word well. Three things that really make this passage kind of leap off the page, and the very first is that it is saturated with Scripture. Saturated with Scripture. Now, saturation is not a word that we think of unless there's a really bad rainstorm and the ground gets so saturated that what happens? There's now a flood. The ground can't hold any more water. It's like a sponge that you you put into your sink and you might only get a, a portion of it wet, 
but there's a way to plunge it and squeeze it so you get all the air out. So as the air starts to come back in, it sucks up water to the point that it's so full that if you just barely rest your finger on it, guess what happens? Water gushes forth. It's saturated. In the same way, this passage is saturated with Scripture. There are all kinds of concepts and phrases from the Old Testament and at least 12 Old Testament passages that are referenced in these few verses. <clears throat> what I find really significant is not just its form, how it was put together, but this, um, this song, inspired by the Holy Spirit, voiced by Mary, appears to be completely extemporaneous. And that's not a word that we use a lot today, extemporaneous. Um, this may date me here a little bit. Has anyone had to take a speech class in school? like public speaking. And uh, here's what happens, you know, at the beginning of the year, they're really nice. They give you a topic and they give you like three weeks to prepare to speak on it for like two minutes. And then somebody speaks against it and it's kind of like a debate. Extemporaneous means we don't give you any preparation. You, we've given you a couple weeks to practice. We've given you a couple topics to do your homework in. And then today I go, all right, Joe Mazingo, come on up here. I want you to talk for two minutes on whatever it is. No notes. No preparation, no homework, no study. Joe's got to come up here, and he's got to speak for two minutes on a topic. That's extemporaneous. We don't have any idea that when Mary traveled to her cousin Elizabeth, and I think, the Bible doesn't say this, but I think Mary's pregnancy, oh goodness, if she was in a Baptist church, would probably just be a little bit gossip-worthy. And I think she just decided to get the heck out of Dodge. She goes to her cousin's. And when Elizabeth sees her, who is pregnant herself with John the Baptist, she says that the Holy Spirit so moves John the Baptist in the womb that when Jesus comes close in utero, he rejoices. And, and Elizabeth greets Mary with his high and exalted language, and she says what I think is amazing. This baby in Mary's womb, not even perhaps fully formed, Elizabeth says, when you came, I recognized the Lord. You want to talk about x-ray vision? That's spooky awesome that in the womb, before he's done anything, lived a sinless life, died a, 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 an atoning death, Elizabeth recognizes baby in the womb as her living Lord. That's amazing. And so when, Mary, when Elizabeth greets Mary, there's this incredible uh, extemporaneous poem or a song that she lifts up. In her rejoicing, it, it expresses what I call a very deep, piety. She loves the Lord, a piety and a knowledge of the word. Here she is, pregnant in a gossip-worthy way, tired from a long journey, because remember, first century, no Uber, no light rail, no bus, you walk. It's dirty, it's dusty. Pregnant, tired, and yet when Elizabeth greets her, she erupts, she gushes forth from the deep well of her heart, all of the scripture that she has hidden there and treasured. Somebody came into our church today and confiscated all the Bibles. Would you be able to be a part of a Bible study next week? Based upon the, God, the, 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 the amount of God's word that you have hidden in your heart. I imagine most of our churches would cease to exist. We'd get together, we'd probably sing a song or two, um, but we wouldn't know enough to continue meeting regularly. It's something that's lost in our day that we have to pray that God gives us a passion to hide his word in our heart. <clears throat> Lastly, the third kind of outstanding feature is how God is pictured. God is displayed as both strong 
and gentle. Now, <clears throat> I'll, I'll speak to the men here in the room. If, if I ask you, and don't lie because you're in church, if I ask you, which would you rather be, strong or gentle? Anybody going to vote for strong? We like strong. Gentle. You know, we have, an, we have um, a cognate we use for that. That's called girly man, you know. I don't want to be a girly man. I want to be a manly man. And yet God is here pictured as both strong and gentle. He cares for the downtrodden and the oppressed. But he has enough power to completely turn the world's social order on its head. God's actions that flow from his character, who he is, are displayed in this passage in a most beautiful, beautiful fashion. So Mary begins, as we look at our passage, Mary begins in fifth gear. She begins uh, with her engine revved. Elizabeth's greeting causes the Holy Spirit to be all over this occasion. And in this passage, verses 46 and 47, we see that Mary sets an example of finding our deepest joys in God. Not, Not the things of this world, our deepest joys in God. Listen to what the scriptures say. The Bible says this, My soul proclaims the greatness of the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Two small verses, but I love it. It's all about her reaction. And I I really like the way the Holman Christian Standard Bible translates this passage. Your passage that you're reading in your Bible may not read exactly the same way, but this has Mary saying, my soul proclaims the greatness of the Lord. Proclaims. The verb that you find in your Bible may be, my soul magnifies. My soul exalts. My soul praises. My soul glorifies. Here's the challenge, and here's here's why I like proclaims. Exalting, glorifying, rejoicing, and praising can be internal. You know, there, there are people, like you know this when you come to worship. There are some people that you know worship has started because they, they, get, they get like thunderstruck from heaven. Eyes closed, hands up. It's ready. They're expressive. You get some people, this is the most expressive they get in worship. They're afraid that like, if they smile, like they've broken the 11th commandment. I'm like, it's okay. Everybody smile. It's okay. We're in church. God loves us. We know that he's given his son for us. It's good. We can smile. We're okay. And in this sense, she is saying... It is not, her reaction is not simply an internal thing that you can't investigate. Her rejoicing in God is far more than an internal attitude. She's proclaiming, it's public. She is proclaiming, and it says that not only proclaiming, she's rejoicing. Here's my question for you. You got to think about this. Can you rejoice if you don't proclaim? As a matter of fact, The reason I think we don't rejoice more is because we put so little effort into proclaiming. How do you think your rejoicing would look if if you covered your responsibility as a Christian to proclaim God's greatness? Anybody think you'd rejoice a little bit more? Donovan, I'm with you. I totally think we would be rejoicing more. Friends, I think it's the same for you. We all want to rejoice. That's fun. Proclaiming, that's work. Not if you see proclamation as the source and the fountain of where your joy comes from. Friends, don't rejoice if you don't intend to proclaim. As a matter of fact, I think your soul's pretty much going to shrivel up like a prune 
if you're not involved in, in proclaiming. You want to get your joy on? You want to understand what it means to rejoice in the Lord? Then learn something about proclaiming. I, I find this interesting. Um, it, it just kind of slips it in very quickly. My soul proclaims the greatness of the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. It's a quick note, but only sinners need saviors, right? Only sinners need saviors. And from Mary's own lip, she's referring to this baby in her womb as God, my Savior. There are some churches out there that teach in order for Mary to be the bearer of God, the God-bearer, she had to be sinless. The problem with that is, how did she get sinless? Was her mom sinless? And her grandmom sinless? And her great-grand... Now, you don't solve the problem of Jesus being born by making Mary sinless. Now you got a question, how did she become sinless? Now you have to have this whole line going back. The, the point here is this. There was nothing special about Mary's human nature that made her the bearer of God. We'll see from the passage. Mary says, I'm, I'm, I'm humble Mary. God, is, God has favored me. I, I don't deserve this. There's nothing different here. We find that God is able through His power to do His work, not through anything about Mary's character. Now, it's kind of funny. If, um, if God picked you for the privilege of being the bearer of Christ, which, by the way, He has. If you're a Christian, the name means little Christ. You are a bearer of Christ. But if God gave you the privilege of being the young woman through whom Christ would be born. You think that would make you just a little bit proud? You go to the dinner party. Now, I love Brian Regan. He talks about people at dinner parties. You know, there's always someone that tries to up your tail. So, you know, you, you talk about, man, it's been a really bad week. I got two wisdom teeth told. He says, don't ever tell a tale about two wisdom teeth because the people who got four wisdom teeth pulled, they're going to shoot your story down and say, two wisdom teeth? No, I got four pulled. Someone else is going to be, no, I got like six pulled, bro. Like, and they were like sticking out like tusks. Imagine this, man. You get to the dinner party, and you are the one who has born Christ. You have the trump card of trump cards to talk about, oh yeah, I got six wisdom teeth pulled. I bore the savior of the world. You know, like mic drop, you know, leave it alone. It's just a crazy thing. Yeah, here's the thing that's so amazing. Mary, while highly favored, honored with this special privilege, doesn't allow pride to grow in her heart. She's just so overwhelmed with joy at what God has done and what he is doing that there is no room for pride in her heart. You know why? Because God lives there. And hum, uh, prideful people have no room in their heart for God or for anyone else except for themselves. Humility is the natural byproduct of people who stop and take the time to reflect on who God is. So if you have a problem with pride, you know what the doctor's orders are? Not to try to kill it yourself, but to reflect on who God is. Because if you understand how big God is, then how infinitely small you are, it can't help but produce humility in your life. So Mary's ready to get her praise on. We just looked at the first verse, verses 46 and 47. What drives this intense desire? One word, God. 
God drives this desire to praise. So in the rest of her song, she focuses on the virtues of God's character and how that character causes his actions to be virtuous as well. She focuses on the virtue of his character and the righteousness of his actions. So let's look and see what God has done. Three verbs control the whole direction of this song. The very first verb is this. God gives some people a special look. Guys, I'm going to pick on you because I am one. Don't raise your hand at this. Have you ever said something of which your spouse has disapproved? And the only way that you know that she disapproves is that she has given you a special look. You know what it is. You're like, dang, I'm going to pay for that. I'm sleeping on the couch tonight. Um, you know what special look. What's special look look like? You know, eyebrow, you know. Sometimes, man, like, it's like the whites of their eyes disappear and it all just turns dark. <laughs> Laser beams shoot out. Steam comes out the ears. You're like, oh, there's a look. There's a look. <clears throat> there's another look, too, that's a special look in a good sense of special. Your, your spouse, nine months ago, mentioned something in passing that she would kind of like. And um, you didn't make a big fuss about it. You didn't write it down. You just filed it away mentally. She said it in passing while you're driving somewhere. And Christmas is coming up. And it's a, it's a gift that maybe is a little more on your, the extravagant side from kind of where you're at. And she doesn't, she can't possibly remember the conversation because it was just in passing. And yet on Christmas Day, you have this gift and it is exactly the thing that she wanted. And when she opens it up, it's, you know, is, it's temporary stopping breathing. <laughs> you know, it's, wow, surprise. And you get, guess what? A special look. <laughs> this is the special look that you want, not the laser beams and the steam out the ears look. So God gives some people a special look. Verses 48 through 50. We go, <coughs> we go back to verse 46 and 47. Mary says, My soul proclaims the greatness of the Lord. My spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. Verse 48. Because He has looked with favor on the humble condition of His slave. Surely from now on, all generations will call me blessed because the Mighty One has done great things for me. And holy is his name, his mercy is from generation to generation on those who fear him. God gives some people a special look. What is that look? It's a look of favor. It is a look of blessing. It is a look of acting on their behalf. And Mary says, listen, when I look at God and when I see what God has done for me, I recognize his special look upon my life. She recounts in a very personal way what God has done for her in this pregnancy, which has made her the topic of lots of water cooler conversations. She is able to say, despite people's gossip, he has looked with favor on the humble condition of his slave. That's me, Mary's saying. I'm his bondservant. Do with me whatever you design to do, no matter what people say or whatever kind of public shame I have to bear. She sees God's favor upon her. She doesn't stop with just her. She, she goes on in verse 50 to say his mercy is from generation to generation. She says, you want an example of God's goodness? I have, I have a testimony. I got something to say. God has been good to me. But I want you to think it's about me. It's not about me. God has been good from generation to generation. I am but the last promise in a long line of promises that God has faithfully kept 
God is good and he has always and will always be good all the time. He's good. God's looked with favor and mercy upon me. So we don't just see his actions, the fact that God looked, that he saw, but we see important characteristics about God that make him praiseworthy. God is given an exalted title. He's called in verse, oh, verse 49, he's called the mighty one. Now, um, if you grew up in my age, there was a cartoon character who was mighty and he was a mouse. Little fella, you go, man, how, mighty mouse? That sounds like an oxymoron, jumbo shrimp. Mighty mouse, he was little, but he was mighty. Talks about his power. But she goes on to talk about other attributes of him. Not only is he the mighty one, she says his name is holy. One of the ways God, <clears throat> God displays his might is in his holiness. Here's a question for you, okay? As a Christian, you are to be holy as God is holy. God's holiness is mighty. How's your holiness? Is it mighty? No. You, know, you want to know what your holiness is like? Swiss cheese. It's got holes all in it. it, it you, you design and desire to be holy, but anybody perfect at it? Not me. Not you. But God in His holiness, is, He's mighty. So we have all these pictures of God that are being built up. He's the mighty one. He's holy. And you know what? A mighty one who is holy is not somebody I think I can have a relationship with. He's mighty. That's scary. He's holy. Man, you don't want anything to do with me. And he go, she goes on to say, not only is he mighty, not only is, his hol- is he holy, but his mercy is from generation to generation. What an amazing thing. God in his mightiness and in his holiness sounds fearful, but yet he is merciful, often overlooked. But that's who he is. He is power. He is holiness. He is mercy. And I love the way Lamentations 3 22 and 23 says it. The Lord's loving kindness, the Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease. For his compassions, they never fail. They are new every morning. Great is his faithfulness. Anybody need mercy today? Anybody going to need it tomorrow? Teenagers, you ever ask your parents for money? Here's a hint, teenagers. If you asked your parents for money last night, don't ask them again today. That well will run dry pretty quick. You know what's amazing? That doesn't happen with God's mercy. Limitless supply. Mercy upon mercy. You can ask today. You can ask tonight. You can ask tomorrow morning. He always has mercy, and he's willing to give it. Mom and dad aren't always willing to give you money, but God will always be willing to give you mercy. As we look at how God looks, we have to ask ourselves if we have the same eyes that God has. Here's the question. Do we look favorably upon those of humble estate? Do you look with favor upon those who are humble? Because the challenge is wherever you fit, whoever your, your group is, whoever your clique is, whatever your social standing is, you know that old saying about birds of a feather flock together? It's true. Because if, if this is you, if there's somebody who's up here above you or somewhere down here, you ignore them both. They might as well be dead to you. You don't look, you don't look with favor upon those of humble estate. 
you look on favor with guys that can help you get up or people who are equivalent. And the tendency is to look down our sinful long noses at those who are of humble estate. And yet the Bible states very clearly that God regards with favor those who are humble. Now this is not a blanket endorsement for people that are in bad circumstances. The Bible is very clear about this. We've got to put our thinking caps on. The Bible is not generically merciful. The Bible is specifically merciful. Who does the Bible say that God gives His mercy to? Verse 50, His mercy is from generation to generation on those who fear Him. There's a relationship. There's a relationship. Why do you ask your parents for money? Go ask somebody else's parents for money. Stop asking me for money, kids. Go ask somebody else. They're not going to give you money because there's no relationship. In the same way, God gives mercy to His children. And we know that we're His children because we fear Him. Now, a lot of times when we talk about fearing God, we make it sound like we got a quake in our boots at His power and His holiness. And that's not it at all. Because the Bible's also told us He's merciful. So here's a good definition of what it means to fear God. Fearing God means to cherish and respect God in such a way that we seek to honor Him by avoiding what's contrary to His will and striving after what pleases Him. Isn't that good? You want to fear God? Love Him enough to do what His Word says you should do and stay away from the stuff that He says isn't good for you. That's what fearing God is. Fearing God doesn't have to do with any kind of religious experience. It has to deal with religious obedience. Doing what God once. God is merciful. As a matter of fact, He's so merciful that the Bible says that even while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. See, that's not the way I operate. I'm not going to give it to you for nothing. Like, my boys, they hear this frequently. Clean your room, and I'm going to give you ice cream. Vacuum, you get a cookie. You want to go to QT, get you some uh, 79 cents, big Q? <laughs> your man, just do your chores. <laughs> what do we do? We negotiate. Don't negotiate with terrorists. It's not a good idea. Um, <coughs> you will lose. The Bible says we don't even have to do anything while you were a sinner and didn't even care. Christ died for you. He dies for us. He dies for me because Jesus came for sinners. Second verb, God's might is expressed in what he has done. Verses 51 through 53. He has done a mighty deed with his arm. (coughs) He has scattered the proud because of the thoughts of their heart. He has toppled the mighty from their thrones. He's exalted the lowly. He has satisfied the hungry with good things, but he sent away the rich empty. What has he done? He uses his power his might to enact mighty deeds. And the mighty deeds recorded in this verse completely reverse the world's value system. And he does this on behalf of those who fear him. What does God do for those who fear? He moves mountains. And in this passage, we're given a, um, an opportunity to evaluate our value system. Because if we uh, are Robin Leach, lifestyles of the rich and famous, we think that if you're rich, if you're famous, if you have power that you are some way especially blessed by God. You have, you have standing. Like, that, that's just objective. If you're rich, if you're powerful, 
Man, you are favored by God. You are blessed. Yet power deludes us. Money makes us stupid. Because when you have power and you have money, you think you're in control of life, right? You have privileges, right? You start to think that there are certain things that are owed you. Don't they know who I am? You start to think that you're better than others. Look what I drive. You're driving a 15-year-old, 20-year-old Ford Taurus, you know, um, held together by duct tape, you know. What is that? There's a question out there about some credit card that makes it sound like what's in your wallet is the most important question about you. Sorry, Samuel Jackson, I like you, but that ain't the most important question. The most important question is who's on the throne of your heart? I don't care what's in your wallet. God owns it. And if he's on the throne of your heart, he owns everything already. He has done mighty deeds. He's been called merciful. Yet the fearful thing in this verse is his mercy is being expressed to those who fear him. But for those who don't fear him, guess what? There is no mercy. You're rich. He's going to take from the rich. He's going to give to the poor. You're hungry. He's going to find a way to satisfy your needs. But the people who are proud, they receive no mercy. They receive no satisfaction. God looks with favor upon the humble, but he looks with severity upon those who do not fear him. Now, I got I to gotta talk about proud people for just a second, okay? Anybody ever met a proud person? Yeah, there's usually not a whole lot of room for you in the room when they're in the room because their head is just so big. It's huge. And um, the challenge is like there's a, there's a meter that we have in our hearts that... that give us an animosity towards proud people. You see those people, that they, they just walk around like the world revolves around them, and they look down on people in front, externally, the way they carry themselves, the way they speak, the way they just act. You're just like, ugh, I don't want to be around them. They're proud people. The problem is that pride is not always manifested externally and observably. Look at verse 51, when it says that God scatters the proud He scatters the proud because of the thoughts of their heart. You know, you may not look proud, and you may be the most pompous thing in the room. And no one can hold you accountable for that because it's not on the outside, it's on the inside. The Bible says he scatters people who are proud because proud people don't need God. I'm going to pull myself up by my own bootstraps. God, what have you done? I made this money. I, I worked hard for this. I did it by myself. And it says he scatters the proud just like he did to those people building the Tower of Babel who were proud in their hearts. said, let's build a tower up to heaven. Let's go see what God's like because he ain't working for us. So let's go tell him a thing or two. And God confused their language and he scattered them. He chased them to the corners of the world. So when we talk about not just how we look at things, but what God is doing in reversing the social order, we have to ask ourselves, does the way we live conform to the world's standards. Because I think in this day and age, the church has gotten so off track that we look just like the world. We don't look any different. We need to look like God's standards, not the world's standards. Verse 54 and 55, we see that God delivers, third verb, help to His chosen chosen people. He looks, He does, the end result is that He helps. Verse 54 and 55, He has helped his servant Israel, mindful of his mercy, just as he spoke to our ancestors, to Abraham and his descendants forever. 
We're told that God has helped Israel, that he has remembered his mercy just as he spoke. Just as he spoke, what's that mean? It means that God is faithful. God is faithful. And specifically, you find this word up from generation to generation. Verse 49, Mary says, all generations will call me blessed. Verse 50, his mercy is from generation to generation. His help in verse uh, 55, just as he spoke to our ancestors, to Abraham and his descendants forever, from generation to generation, God proves his faithfulness to each generation. You know why he has to do that? Because you can't live on the faith of your mom and dad. You can't live on the faith of your forefathers. You have to have faith yourself. God promised mercy. God promised favor to Abraham and to all of the generations that came after him that placed their faith in God. And you know what? He has kept that promise. He has kept that promise. Y'all are ordering Christmas presents all online, and you're wondering, is Amazon going to send the drone and drop it off on my doorstep? Is, uh, is UPS going to, you know, what's Brown going to do for me? Is it going to be here in time? The postal service, we don't even know where it's at. You know, it's, we hope that it's coming. But you know what? When God has a package of mercy and favor for you, it will always get to, to you right on time, in time, right when it needs to be. Not when you think it needs to be. God will never, never be unfaithful to his promise. He is right on time all the time. So here's the deal. We look at the verbs. God looks. God does. And the end result as we look back is God helps. The challenge for you is if you're going to rejoice the way that Mary does, you have to be focused on God. And if you want to be focused on God, you need to be doing the things inspired by the Spirit that God does in this passage. So do you look? Do you do? Do you help? Because I fear that the temptation is for most of us to be like the priest and the Levite in the story of the Good Samaritan. You know the Good Samaritan. He's the third guy that stumbles upon the dude that got beat up on the road, robbed, Stripped down, left for naked, left for dead. See, there's a priest and a Levite. They're walking down the road, taking care of their business. They see some dude laying in the side of the road. Probably think, oh, you know, if I stop and help them, somebody's going to jump out and they're going to they're gonna beat me up. Now I'm going to be bleeding and naked on the side of the road. So it says that they crossed over the road to walk on this side of the road because the dude's laying over there bleeding and groaning. And they cross over so they don't have to look. They can say, I didn't see, yeah, I walked that road, officer. I didn't see nothing. I didn't see nothing. Because if you look, you might have to do. You might have to help. And yet the Samaritan comes along and he looks and it leads to action and it leads to help. Like God helps. Aren't you glad that God didn't have ap- apathy? Related to our plight. I don't know if you've ever heard of a thing called the bystander effect. The bystander effect. It's um, 1964. A woman by the name of Kitty Genovese. Kitty Genovese uh, ran a bar in Queens, New York City. And she was uh, driving home after she closed up the bar in 1964 to her apartment complex. There was a man, and I I don't remember his name, not important, who... uh, Woke up at about 1 o'clock in the morning, left his wife and kid uh, safe and snug in their home, and decided he was going to go find a woman because they're weaker, and he was going to kill her. He, um, they meet in an intersection. He follows her to her apartment complex. She gets out of, the apartment, uh, out of the car, walks through the parking lot on the way to her 
apartment complex when he attacks. He stabs her multiple times. There's screaming and yelling. It's quite, uh, uh, it's quite a scene. And some man from the apartment complex yells down from an upper story window, window, leave that girl alone, to which the perpetrator flees. And Kitty Genovese crawls to the back door of her apartment complex to get into the ele- elevators and get to the stairwell. And yet she is too weak from the uh, attack that she has sustained that she lays on the, the entryway and can't reach up to the door. Uh, the perpetrator goes off a couple blocks to wait and to watch to see if anyone comes out. And after about 15 minutes, he figures, you know, the guy just yelled. So he goes back and rapes and stabs her multiple, multiple times, and she dies. True story. Police interview residents of the apartment complex, and it turns out that 36 or 37 people heard everything that happened in the attack and just decided that it's 2 o'clock in the morning and I don't want to get involved. And what annoys us is not the fact that it happened, but that at 2 o'clock in the morning, you might have been one of those 36 or 37 people. You want to know what happens? Almost every day in one of our public schools, there's a kid that's getting his butt kicked at school, and there's 50 kids around with their iPhones out doing this. Because they're interested in getting involved and posting it on YouTube, but they're not interested in sticking up for somebody who's being unjustly beat up. It's a problem. This apathy Aren't you glad that God did, didn't yell, Hey, cut it out! But he did something. What he did was incredible. He came down. And he lived among a people that didn't even care for him. He ended up being the victim of mob justice. He was lynched. And he did this willingly to be a sacrifice for our sins so that those who feared him would know his blessing in his favor and would be his ambassadors. God is faithful. The question for us is, are we faithful in how we witness to our faith? Oh yeah, I got faith. Just nobody knows about it. Well, that's not faith. Faith proclaims. There are people that are lining up this holiday season for iPhone Xs and 4K TVs and all kinds of other junk. And what they need, friends, is the gospel. What they need is the message about what Christ has done for them. And friends, here's the deal. They're not going to hear it on the radio station. They're not going to hear it in the flyers that get mailed to your house on what sales happened in this week. They're not going to hear it from the marketers, from the merchandisers. They're going to hear it from you. They're going to hear it from you. They're going to hear it from you. Or they're not going to hear it at all. Because Christ is the only thing that's okay to take out of Christmas. You can put anything else in that you want, just as long as you make sure that you take Christ out of it. God has looked. God has done. God has helped. He's the mighty one, mighty in holiness, mighty in mercy, mighty in faithfulness. For God's sake, do not take this gift that he has given to you and wrap it up and put it under a Christmas tree for someone to find down the road. No rejoicing without proclaiming. Because only then will your joy be full. Father,
Help us not to be satisfied with the standards of this world. Help us not to be satisfied with the standards of our own worship and commitment to you. We're like, ah, if it's status quo, it's all good. It is not good. We do not love you enough, and yet we come to worship. We sing about, oh, God, I love you. You're so lucky to have me. Couldn't be further from the truth. Help us to love you more. Help us to rejoice in what you have done in this season by sending us Christ. Help us to understand that our joy will be so much deeper if we but proclaim the greatness of your name in which we pray.